Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Equity Mates Media, this is The Dive, the podcast that says, who said business news needs to be all business? I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. It's a two-parter today. Instead of deciding between two stories, we thought, why not both? We're getting lost us. So here's what we're talking about. The Nobel Prize for Economics has just been announced and for the third time ever, it's been awarded to a woman. Professor Claudia Golden has won for her extensive research and academic writing on historical trends in gender equality. I'm going to be joined by economics correspondent from Capital Brief, Jennifer Duke, who's going to tell me more about her research. And then recently, there's been a lot of talk about a cashless future. Macquarie Bank announced that they'd be phasing out physical cash and checks from early next year. And the Aussie government has given us a little more time, but they've also added no more checks by 2030. It's Monday, the 16th of October. And today I want to know, what does the future of money look like without physical cash? To talk about this subject today, I'm joined by Andrew Cornell, the Associate Editor, Banking and Finance at Capital Brief. Andrew, welcome to The Dive. Thanks very much, Sasha. Nice to be here. Excellent. Well, there's been a bit of noise lately questioning what the future of cash looks like with the Australian government announcing that they're going to be phasing out checks by 2030 or what made headlines recently, Macquarie Bank declaring they're going to be phasing out checks and cash from next year. The bank is rolling out cashless branches in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane with customers unable to access their money over the counter. Before we look into the future, I think it's really worth examining what our expectation of money is at the current time. You write, our idea of money is both quite modern and typically limited. Can you explain to me what exactly you mean by that? Well, we think about money, like if you or I are talking about money or we're talking about money outside, we tend to talk about dollars and cents and physical currency. But it's, it's actually mainly digital, even in our lives today. When we go shopping, you know, even if we're using a credit card, it's digital. If we're using our phones, it's digital. If we get a home loan, what happens is we don't actually get a loan. What we get is a deposit in our bank account that the bank gives us. And that's purely digital money, essentially, that the bank has created from nothing. So when we talk about money, we're talking about, oh, yeah, I've got a $20 bill or I've got a 20-cent piece or, or whatever. It's a small amount of what really is money. And then that money, it's over history, it's been, well, it goes right back to cowrie shells. I suppose we've all heard about that as a really early form of currency. But there were some civilizations where money were giant rocks. You know, money is is a sort of a greed form of value. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point that you make that, you know, we do think of money as this tangible thing, but it's such an interesting thing to think about that most of the larger sums of money in our lives is kind of 
out there in the ether in the digital form. And Australians using cash and payments has dramatically decreased. The RBA found that cash payments made up just 13% of exchanges and it only represents 8% of the value of money that's out there in our lives. And the organisation has described what we call a self-reinforcing cash use cycle. Can you describe to me what this cycle means? Well, it's a chicken and egg thing. We don't know really, but to start at one point, the cash that we've got, you've got in your purse or I've got the physical cash, where does it come from? It usually comes from an ATM or maybe from the checkout at the supermarket. How does it get to the ATM? It's got to be shipped there by a truck. Where does the money that's in the truck coming from? Well, it's coming from a cash supply, which in some cases is actually the RBA, but in most cases is a commercial bank. How are those supplies stocked? Then essentially we're getting to the point where it comes from the mint, where it's printed, where the money is actually manufactured. But at all those levels, there's a commercial operation. It costs money to run an ATM. It Mm. costs money to ship the the cash around and not just the fuel in the truck, but the massive security costs of cash. All these things cost money. They're not done by the government. They're done by private companies. So we've already seen the number of ATMs decline. Why are they declining? They're declining because we're not using cash as you just run through. So there's not as much of a business case. If there's fewer ATMs, then the security trucks that stop them don't have as much work. So we've already seen rationalisation there. But then, of course, if there's fewer ATMs, if it's harder to get cash, if it's more expensive to get it, pay more at the ATM, more people are going to go, oh, all right, I'll use my phone or I'll use something else. Mm. Therefore, there's even less cash. So that's that idea of there is a cash cycle, but it's self-reinforcing to the extent that if everyone wanted cash, then it would be a very profitable business. Less and less people want cash, less and less profitable, less and less availability, less people using cash. So that's the sense that we're getting. Yeah. And so when you start to think about moving towards a digital currency or or phasing cash out, you have to bring up the conversation of DeFi or, you know, cryptocurrencies and the technology that they represent which, you know, in a sentence is distributed ledgers uh, representing the cash as opposed to the existing financial architecture. And this has added, of course, pressure on the survival of physical cash. Is crypto technology a viable alternative to what we have now? And you point out that for many authorities, it's not. Can you elaborate on why that's the case? Yeah, and look, there's a couple of elements here. Things will evolve. So, and we're already seeing central banks, official suppliers of cash using distributed ledger technology, using, you know, essentially a form of cryptocurrency. The issue is if we step back and say, well, what is this money? With the the physical notes and coins, we agree, we can see the coins, we can see the notes, we agree it's money. With credit cards, with the other money that's coming from banks, it's backed by, even if we don't understand it, we know it's backed by the government at some point, by a central bank. But when we get to something like Bitcoin or other cryptos, who's backing it? What happens if something goes wrong? So there's a lot of different ways of looking at how we define money. But in the most common usage, money has got to be what they call singular. Mm -hmm. So if you've got 
a certain representation of money in how whatever form, and I've got one, the two are the same. You know, your $1 is the same as my $1. Yeah. The problem with crypto, because there's no central authority, is that that's not the case in a technical sense. It, it could be worth more somewhere else than it is worth here. The other thing with money is, and this is why people hoard cash, and they are hoarding cash. You know, there's a lot of big dollar bills in, um, in sort of captivity that aren't being circulated. People hold that because it's a store of value. Your $100 note is going to be worth 100 bucks, give or take inflation, when you get it out from under your mattress in six months' time or 10 years' time. With crypto, you don't know whether that's the case. And equally, why do we have money? Well, it's an exchange of value. We use it to buy our coffee or we use it to buy our house or something like that. Again, with crypto, there's not enough acceptance mm. and there's not enough people with it to make it a viable form of transacting. Equally, we I don't think we'll see dollars and notes disappear because where they've tried that, and Sweden went quite close, the social backlash has been enormous. You know, people just don't want to give it up and no government is going to do it while it's politically unpalatable. But on top of that, we're not at a system where it's foolproof at the moment. The other day, for whatever reason, my credit card stopped working and I realised that if I hadn't had, you know, 30 bucks in my wallet, I would have been standing there at the checkout, you know, with nothing to do. So at the moment, you know, there is, there is still a demand for physical cash and there is still no government, I think, brave enough to just get rid of it. Yeah. So is that why you think why this conversation keeps coming up, even though physical cash is declining in terms of in the actual circulation and as a percentage of value, is that why it still matters that it's out there? Is the psychological and social element to it? I think at the moment it is. I think that's a greater challenge for those who sort of have an ambition for a cashless society. That's a greater challenge than the number of outages because one of the trials that the Reserve Bank of Australia was doing recently was what do you do in disaster situations like fires and floods where people go, oh, well, telecoms is down, we can't use it. Well, in those situations, it's hard to get cash as well. So they've actually looked at how can we use these technologies offline, in which case the, the cashless alternative is actually more secure than the cash alternative in that case. So I think there will be a lot of work done on, on that front. But, you know, particularly for, you know, the older generation, the idea of giving up cash completely, it's just politically, you, know, you wouldn't win any votes with it. Yeah, <laughs> which as much as we want to have these conversations in a vacuum, they're all interconnected, aren't they? Andrew, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion. No, great to chat. Thanks, Sasha. Kind of left with more questions than answered, but really interesting to examine where the psychological and the political overlap with the actual operations of our money system. I know this is a conversation that isn't going anywhere. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, I'm really excited to dig into this one with Jennifer. We're going to talk about Professor Claudia Golden's research the phenomenon that she discovered that meant she was awarded the 2023 Nobel Prize for Economic Science. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello? Hello, am I speaking with Claudia Golden? Yeah. I'm calling from NobelPrize.org. My name is Adam Smith. Many congratulations on the award. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) Tell me, how did the news reach you? Uh, The news reached me by phone this morning when I received a a call and uh, was awakened by it very pleasantly. That is a nice way to be woken. I imagine you wake up pretty fast with that news. Yes. Welcome back to The Dive. The Nobel Prize for Economics has just been announced. And for the third time, it's been awarded to a woman. Professor Claudia Golden has won for her extensive research and academic writing on historical trends in gender equality. I'm really excited to dig into this one. And to talk about this, I've got Jennifer Duke, who's returning. She is the economics correspondent at Capital Brief. Jennifer, welcome to The Dive. Thank you very much for having me back. It's an exceedingly complex phenomenon, of course, and I'm not going to get you to unpack all of that in 10 minutes, but its very existence of the gender pay gap has been, I mean, I've seen so many stashes <laughs> on social media that I've witnessed. So I know it's an incredibly contentious topic. Mm. So Jennifer, can you tell me a bit more about Claudia's research and specifically drill down into this one factor that she's identified, which I find particularly interesting. Can you tell me more about greedy work? Yeah, no problem. So what Claudia found was that there is this thing called greedy jobs. So even when you're controlling for things like someone's education background, their work experience, there's still this gender pay gap. And this factor behind it might just be greedy work. And that's when you have an employer who overvalues overtime, basically. So Mm -hmm. they'll say something like, this is your salary. And usually you're expecting it sort of nine to five. But jobs where you're expected to really grind and do like 25 to 50% more hours, they will pay way in excess of 25 to 50% on top. And while on the surface, that kind of seems pretty gender neutral, actually it's not because women don't have always 25 to 50% extra hours to put in. And that's because at the moment, so often, particularly in straight couples, there is this situation where women are usually the ones who are doing extra childcare. They're usually the ones looking after elderly parents usually still the ones doing the cleaning and the cooking, possibly the ironing, things like that. And so when you're then factoring all that in and all the unpaid work that they're doing, they don't have the time to go and chase these highly lucrative, greedy jobs. And that was what Claudia found, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. And she compared it with women who are in same-sex relationships as well and found that there was a difference as well in that greedy work. Yeah, so Claudia's done a lot of different research. One of the interesting elements around this sort of the same-sex relationship aspect, and this is something that's kind of firmed up in the US, there's a little bit of research in Australia, is that for sort of couples where it's women and women, they don't seem to experience the gender pay gap quite so significantly as their straight peers. So I find it really fascinating because it's one of those things where, say, if you go straight into a straight relationship, there's usually kind of unwritten rules around who's going to be doing certain things like taking out the trash and stuff like that. As much as we like to think that we've kind of moved a long way from where things used to be, clearly that still exists in some component. But for gay couples or for bisexual couples, usually those those written rules, those unwritten rules don't exist so much. And so there is kind of more of a chore balance, I suppose. But the interesting thing about what Claudia found about greedy work is that it kind of affects anyone, regardless of whether you're a male or a female, because if you if you think about it, if there is, there's say a certain number of chores that need to be done, that's up to a couple how they split that up. But if you were to split it 50-50, 
perhaps both of you then don't have time for a greedy job and both of you then miss out on that extra earnings, then as a household, you're missing out on the extra income overall. So sort of like making the best decision as a household unit. And often we do find though that that becomes, you know, unwritten, implicit that the man goes on and does that job and gets that extra income. Yeah. But also what I found so fascinating about reading your piece is that she's identified that the recent pandemic, you know, there is a little bit of a silver lining when it comes to this greedy work because our expectations of how we interact with both our workplaces but also how we exist in the home and in those relationships has shifted. What exactly has she identified? So what was really interesting is that she thinks that maybe greedy work is a little bit less greedy now, which we should all be pretty grateful for, I think. And I think most of us can experience that to some extent. So if you're having work that allows you to be maybe a lot more flexible with where you're working, then you don't have that that commuting hour that you need to think about. And so that becomes time that you can choose to then spend on household chores or to spend, you know, at work and doing doing those things. And so that extra time actually allows women in particular the opportunity to maybe pursue some of those greedy jobs. But it also means that employers are maybe rethinking work-life balance a bit for their staff, reconsidering how they should maybe be treating people. And also, I think there was this overwhelming understanding through the pandemic of the amount of just the amount of crap that people to get through in their, in their home life, right? Like the, there's so much going on behind the scenes. And when you're seeing that through the screen with other people in lockdowns or people trying to look after their children at the same time, there was just like this really lovely kind of, we realize that people have a home life now. And maybe that understanding has gone some way to shifting that greedy jobs element. So I think that's what she was kind of getting at, that maybe this is an opportunity to reconsider how greedy we want our jobs to be <laughs> and uh, and who should be able to do them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the great resignation was a trend for a yes. reason, right? We're all just <laughs> examining all aspects of our life. That's true. And I think, I mean, it's sort of a good thing in a way, because as much as we're being told that at the moment people are working kind of record hours in Australia. We know that that's partly because of the cost of living. We know that's partly because there's a really tight jobs market. People should be really considering what should an ideal work-life balance look like? How many hours should you be putting in to be able to survive and to put food on the table? How does productivity become a part of that? Because if we don't have growing levels of productivity, you have to work longer hours to pay for the same things. And so that's a national conversation that we should be having, men or women, regardless of the workplace. And we're, we're really struggling, I think, to have those sorts of higher level discussions about how we want our lifestyles to look and the role that work plays and not just economic growth for the sake of economic growth. So there's some real opportunities here. And I'm really pleased that Claudia's kind of won the Nobel Prize and allowed everyone to have that discussion again and and, uh, and brought it to the attention of so many people in Australia as well. I don't think there's a better note to finish on than that, <laughs> Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining me on the dive today. Thank you for having me. And we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining me on The Dive. Of course, I'm going to ask you the same thing that I ask every episode, but why do I do it? It's because it works. Please jump into your podcast player, give us a five-star review, write some lovely words. It really helps our little podcast get in front of more ears. And oh my gosh, we want that to happen. A huge thank you to all of you who have already done that, but it makes all the difference. I'm going to be back in your feeds on Wednesday with a new story. Until then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. 
This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 